Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Curzon Film Podcast. This week we are broadcasting to you in vintage black and white to properly discuss Francois Ozon's new film set in Germany and France just after the end of World War I, France. And joining me in the bunker to bring this film into vivid colour are Freddie Chotel and Danny Verrettinidi. Hello guys. Hello. How are we doing? Yeah, not bad. Yeah, very good, very good. Mm. Excellent. Um, so uh, this this is uh, Ozon's probably I don't know twentieth film in twenty years. He just keeps cranking them out. He had a he took an extended two year break for this one after his last, which I think we can probably forgive him that. I think Ben Wheatley did that for the first time this year as well. Um, so Ozon uh, Ozon's film follows Anna. This is. Uh, played by Paula Beer, a German woman who's grieving the death of her fiancé after he's been killed in World War One, And uh, she lives with her fiancé's parents. And one day, a mysterious Frenchman named Adrian, who knew her fiancé, comes to visit. Mm -hmm. um, what do we make of this one? It's very thrilling. Thrilling? Yeah. Thrilling? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And mysterious. Yeah, I, th I think we always tend to look at the marketing and how things are being sold as ways to describe it as. And uh, there's, there's been lots of sumptuous and romantics mm. and sweeping. And I don't think that's maybe right. Because um, you're right, it is thrilling mm. at points, um, but in ways that we're not expecting it to be. Uh, structurally, it is quite different as to where plot points occur as to where we might normally expect them to occur as well. Yeah, for sure. And although it is set around the war, it's very much not a war film either. No, it's about lies and grief and people. Mm. Yeah. I think it's a film that, um, like, uh, has been said uh, a couple of minutes ago, that a lot of labels have been attached to it, um, like sweeping and majestic. Um, some of that publicity, I think, is a, is a bit unfair, really, on watching the film. I think it's uh, quite a quiet you know, quite carefully studied piece. Um, I think it's not your traditional war film. Um, I think it's definitely maybe lightly coming at it from a sort of pacifist point of view. Mm. And I think, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really sweet, lovingly made film, really. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not against the way it's being sold at all because that, only, <coughs> that will encourage people to mm. watch it. 
um, and like, I'm all for that because this is this is something different. It's from from a director who has taken a different direction, and I think that needs to be rewarded because Ozon has been doing a lot of different stuff. I think um, a favorite of his recent work for me is In the House, which is almost a literary English student inception trance mm. um desperate housewives story mm. which and so this feels wildly different to that and his most recent film the new girlfriend as well it couldn't be more different to that as well yeah for sure i've seen the new girlfriend i really like that one but it is really different like i i, I wouldn't say it's the same director but that's quite good because i think a lot of times when with like directors that have a lot of films it's like the auteur kind of um, label that stuck with them and then they kind of it's hard when they break out yeah. but I think he did it really well in this one yeah um, so to get us started to talk about France uh, it is it is no coincidence that France and France <laughs> are homophones and we may well get into that later yes uh, France and the country of France and so for this week's podcast pitch I was hoping you guys could pitch me a film uh, with a homophonic title to another film that already exists. Freddie, would you like to start us off? Yeah, I've got a few. Um, <laughs> so I would pitch the, the King's Speech, but it's not a film about George VI. But it, it is, but it's about his favourite type of fruit. Oh, um, okay. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean, that is not a swashbuckling adventure movie. That's a really boring uh, tax exemption movie about pastry field products in the Caribbean. That's good. Thank you. That that's, that sounds like uh, it would be the subtitle to a dispatches. Dispatches, indeed. Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, and probably a final one, The Horse Whisperer, which is not a film starring Scarlett Johansson. That's set place in a library, probably starring someone like Sylvester Stallone, um, getting very angry with people. With late fees and checking in, checking out books. Oh, mm. and he's has he got a cold? So yeah, he's quite the, hoarse. The horse whisperer. <laughs> That's oh, good. Okay. That's very good. I like the horse whisperer. Yeah, Danny. I only have one. <laughs> <laughs> um, taking Ken Loach's Sweet Sixteen and changing Sweet to Sweet the Hotel Sweet. Um, and mine is this set in the seventies, and it's about a couple that won in the radio. Um, a room for the night in a hotel, um, Suite 16. Sweet, okay. And um, it's basically, they're going crazy things happen. They're stuck in the room, and it's kind of, I was picturing it like um, Beetlejuice. Okay, nice. So that's sort of vibe. Like a 1408 Stephen King kind of mystery hotel room yeah. horror kind yeah. of situation. Mm. Yeah. All right. But well, funny horror. Funny horror. Mm. Well, I also went down the horror route, and I know what you guys are thinking. There's not enough PG horror films out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to fill the gap in that void because there are a lot of kids out there who want to see horror films and they're sneaking in to them and like, why don't we make one that they can watch? Mm. Uh, and so there are two men and they're trapped in a room. They've been, they wake up there and they, they can't escape. And then a message uh, on, a, on a, like a little clown cycles into the room oh god and, that's my worst nightmare <laughs> and uh, says that they don't they don't have to kill each other or maim each other they just have to keep giving each other dead legs just just punching each other in the leg nothing too bad just until they're a bit 
So. <laughs> okay, got it. I like it. I like it yeah. very much. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that and, and that, that's a franchise right there. Mm. Yeah. So I mean, two, so three. A bit so. A bit so. More so. Yeah. <laughs> Just dead legs, dead arms. Noogies, just like <laughs> uh, headlocks. There's a whole franchise there of different ways to make people sore, mm. uh, and it's, it's just well, it's one for the kids, isn't it? Yeah, one for the yeah. kids. Um, uh, points there. I don't know. I think I I like I, I like the King's Peach, but I I think the Horse Whisperer <laughs> might have to be my favourite there. Danny. Yeah, I'm going to go for Horse Whisperer. Horse Whisperer, well done. Uh, well done, Freddie. So the Horse Whisperer with Sylvester Stallone going in production this Ooh. year. Fantastic. <laughs> right, on to France. Uh, so uh, this film is a it's predominantly a black and white film. It's uh, shot on lovely 35mm. Everyone is softly shining. It's a very, very beautiful film. It won the Caesar Award for cinematography, the equivalent of the French Oscars, and that's no coincidence um, and I think when we see it on the posters, and so I found the first shot of it to be confusing, mm. Mm. Uh, because the first shot of France is is colour. Mm. Yeah, and I I don't that's not really a, it's not a spoiler because it is the first shot of the film. I think it's just um, if you've if you've only seen the trailer, uh, it might throw you off there. But uh, it is worth revealing that at the start because the movement between black and white and colour plays a significant role in how this story is told. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also think it's worth pointing out that it's kind of like a retro-tinted colour. Mm. So it's not... I didn't find it too jarring. Um, and I certainly feel that the colouring of certain scenes and sequences uh, usually tied into uh, time and place, or, or different sort of spatial and temporal uh, sequences that are happening in, in the film as well. So I think... The film is sort of, in terms of its structure that we were talking about, and that it's it's effectively split into, well, nominally split into two parts. Mm -hmm. There is a, there are kind of like undercurrents, and they're they're really undercurrents of time and memory, and I think that's what the function of certainly, I took from watching France that the the colouring of certain sequences, uh, seemed to indicate. Uh, moments that might not be happening, uh, or maybe never really happened. They are just um, sort of refractions or compositions in people's characters that you're seeing on screen, memories of people that are gone or, you know, past times, past events. Okay, because I, I didn't necessarily get the temporal thing from it, um, but I got the idea that black and white is effectively a very unsubtle um, way of portraying the black cloud of grief. Mm. And it's in the moments that the film turns into colour is the moments where people literally are brought back to life and they show they're, they're, they're able to escape their grief for a little moment whether that is through memory of the deceased or escape from the grief through someone else or some event we're introduced through the eyes of Anna and this is this is a, a different way of approaching the story as it has been told before is that right? It's a, it's a, certainly it's a different way. It's it's a it's a departure from um, the original play it was based. Because yeah, um, people people may not listening may not know that this is not an original story. No, this is this is based on a, on a play uh, translated and re and sort of adapted into English um, that was then made into a film by Ernst Lubitsch called uh, Broken Lullaby, mm. which is very close, um, I believe, to the 
to the play itself, the actual original source material. Um, and I was on in talking about making of this film had been pitched this idea about about adapting this play that it was very fond of actually, um, and then was initially struck with kind of despair and depression when he'd found out that Lubitsch had had beaten him to the punch. Mm. Um, but I think in some respects uh, it, it it handed him a kind of a, a unique challenge in that how do you take on um, and not really an adaptation but an adaptation of an adaptation and and there you get this sort of response which is why or what he has called it's a response to Lubitsch rather than or Lubitsch's realisation of the source material um, and I think that's why it is split into two parts without giving too much away yeah um, uh, and that second part is the newest part of it this is where it's, he's really expanded on the play and Lubitsch's film yeah that's where he's he's tacked it, that's uh, his chance to really bring um, a lot of new information and new material um, to a play that's been extant now for probably about 60, 70 years, I think. Mm, that's really interesting. I would like to see um, Broken Lullaby. Yeah, Broken Lullaby is, is very much, um, from my understanding, because unfortunately I haven't seen it yet, mm. but my understanding is that it pretty closely matches this film um, uh, almost for a, about an hour. You know, it's really sort of, it's almost two hours, France. Mm. And oh, I think okay. the first hour is very, very close uh, to Lubitsch's. Um, and then the second half, the refocusing around um, Anna, Paula Beer's character, um, is definitely Ozon's departure and response to Lubitsch and the play itself. Yeah. Um, and the th- showing or telling the story through Anna is a, is a new direction as well, because giving her so much more time and seeing the story and the events unfolding through her um, is is different to those as well, as I understand it anyway. Yeah, no, certainly um, I, I think it allows um, a different perspective. If you're talking about the colour scheme it's certainly grief um, that you have um, it really involves it's multi-levels of grief, multi multi-layers of grief. You have Anna and the parents grieving. You have the nation of Germany grieving. You have a broken Europe. Um, so Europe itself, you have two uh, international visitors. You have France and, and Germany, and they're both shot in black and uh, in monochrome, black and white. Um, and even when in the second half, without giving too much away, when Anna goes to France, mm-hmm. that's that's in black and white. Um, and I think the the change from colour uh, to black and white definitely indicates a change in mood, mm. 100%. I, I, I definitely think there's a whole discussion about happiness. Uh, it's interesting that the word that Adrian doesn't know in German is happy, mm. but he's, he does know it. Obviously, he knows it in French, but there's, there's an early scene where he, he's, he stumbles on the word happiness and he has to ask what is, what is happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think definitely there are little nods in the script itself to what those colour sequences are. But yeah. I think there's a huge elephant in the room that the the title is France, and yet yet you don't see France, effectively. Yeah. He, he is not there, he's not present at all. So it's it's about people being wrapped around that, and particularly, obviously, his significant other, who is Anna. So I think that's why the second half is really, really about Anna, I follow yeah. Anna. And so let's, let's bring in, we mentioned Adrian there. Uh, Adrian is the instigator of the story here. Um, and so we meet a Frenchman who comes to this small German town to place flowers on the grave 
of France. Uh, so Anna's fiancé and the son of um, the people that Anna is living with as well. Uh, and so Danny mentioned at the beginning that this is a thriller uh, in parts, and that's very true in the first half of the film. Because of spoilers, we won't go into too much about what occurs there, um, but there is this mystery about who Adrian is and what role he has to play uh, in the relationship with France and Anna too. And I think it it does play on being... Um, the mystery of it is what lures you in, um, but it uses this foreigner in a foreign land just after the war, just after conflict, to raise some delicate issues that Ozon himself said in the interview that we will play in a bit, he wasn't aware it would become so politically relevant now. Mm. Yeah, um, it is quite interesting because I think like when you meet him, he introduces us, himself as a friend of um, Anna's um, fiancé who passed away. and um, But you can tell that's not the case. Mm. Like There's something else going on, and I think that's what draws you into the story because you try to find out what, 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 why is he there. Why is he visiting them, his grave and everything? And then that lures you in. And then the revelation comes a lot quicker than you would expect. Yeah. Because I thought that would be the main narrative arc yeah. for the whole thing. But it wasn't. And that was a good surprise to me. Yeah. And that was um, that was uh, one of the challenges of the script that Ozon goes into. Um, so let's uh, let's have a listen to it now. Uh, Fo- Freddie, you went along to speak to him? Yeah, it was a, it was a lovely chat. Very engaging, very willing to talk about his film. Um, and I think I was uh, intrigued by the reaction his film was getting and how a lot of people have been reading lots of sort of uh, political uh, parallels into it. Um, so, yeah, I talked to him about uh, France. Yeah. Uh, and just as a note, there is a translator in the room uh, who there just is. clears up a few of the questions. Um, so, if you're wondering um, what that voice is. <laughs> um, so, here we are. Uh, this is Freddie and Francois Ozon. I'm delighted to be talking to Francois Ozon about his new film, France, which will be showing in Curzon Cinemas from the 12th of May. Hello. And um, I really, really love the film. It's a beautiful film, lots of moments of stillness. Um, interspersed moments of colour and movement and action. And I wanted to ask you about your initial discovery that Ernst Lubitsch had already beat you to the punch, effectively, and that you had to recover from a kind of moment of, um, I think you said, depression and despair. Yes. (laughs) And then you turned that actually around. Did that initial discovery bring to you um, a certain freedom, actually, with your adaptation? Actually, my discovery was first the play. A uh, French play written uh, just after the First World War, and uh, it was a very famous play at this time, totally forgotten today. And it's a friend of mine who told me it's an interesting uh, story, you should read it. So I read the play, I really loved it, and I decided to make an adaptation. But then, during the adaptation, I realized another director made it already, and it was Lubitsch. So I was a little bit depressed because how to make a film after Lubitsch with one of my a favorite director, so I decided to look for the film, which is not very famous because it was a big flop uh, in the 30s, and I watched it, I really enjoyed it, but I realized 
uh, I wanted to make a different film because the film of Lubitsch uh, was made from the point of view of the French character and my idea was to tell the story from the point of view of the loser of the war mm. and especially from the point of view of the young German girl and uh, different, the second different thing was the fact uh, Lubitsch made the film in the 30s without knowing that the Second World War would mm. happen. So I knew my perspective would be totally different and uh, it was impossible to, to have the same happy ending than uh, in the film of Lubitsch. So I changed really the adaptation. I have a second part in the film which didn't exist in, the, in his film and in the play. And, um, and it's, it's, it's like an answer to Lubitsch movie, mm. you know. Yeah, you've described it as a response to the Lubitsch film. Yes. And covering on that sort of freedom that that response gives you, I was wondering about the real strong theme that I picked up watching the film, that freedom is often paired with deception. Um, and in this film there are moments where people deliberately mislead people or might misrepresent certain truths in a way of gaining, the, gaining personal liberty and also providing sort of... <laughs> and also providing freedom for other people um, so I'm talking about the Hofmeister as an example okay so the idea of deception and lie lies giving that giving some sort, some sort of, of sense of release some sort of freedom donc le mensonge, maybe catharsis actually catharsis catharsis mm. mais que donne donne l'impression donner une, pas seulement une, une liberté aussi aussi une, une opportunité de de, de, de de faire son deuil de changer de um, it was important for me uh, to tell to to tell a story about lies in a certain context. Uh, of course, I didn't want to make a glorification of lies, but I wanted to show that lies can sometimes help you to survive, mm. and uh, and I wanted to to show this paradox and to to give the opportunity to, audi to the audience to ask themselves what would have done in, in the same case, you know, because it's a moral case. What should do Anna in the same, uh, same context? Or what should you do at the place of Adrien? So I wanted to ask all these questions. I don't have the answers, but I wanted to, to show the ambiguity and the complexity of this situation, especially in a period like, uh, like the war, which is a period of mourning, of grief. And uh, all these questions were very uh, strong for me. So I wanted, yes, to, to, to work on that. Fantastic. In, you just mentioned the war and the film opens in 1919 and it's yes. the immediate aftermath of this cataclysmically awful event. And you have these people using deception to try and find solace or some sort yes. of peace in a peace. You're shown communities in France and Germany both aligning or allying themselves with a sort of sense of... There are two scenes in two bars. I won't go mm -hmm. into too much detail for those people who haven't seen it. But where a song is completed and it, they, are, they could be perceived as patriotic and nationalistic uh, or bearing those sort of sentiments. Was that deliberate on your behalf and was it, ref was it enforced by anything that's going on in today's current political climate? 
I didn't know my film will become so political because my idea was first to make a film about secrets and lies, but uh, when I decided to develop the historical context, uh, I had of course to speak about nationalism, especially in Germany, because we know after uh, the Treaty of Versailles and the humiliation uh, of losing the war, uh, we know that uh, in Germany the roots of Nazism are there and the, the rise of nationalists will, will, uh, will happen because of uh, losing the war. So it was important to, to show this context, but at the same time I wanted to show that the French nationalist was the same. You know, at the end nationalists from France or from Germany it's the same thing. Mm. You know, it's the same stupid thing. So I wanted to show the danger, of course, of nationalism. That's why it was important, especially in the second part of the film, to hear the song of the national national song, uh, French song, mm. La Marseillaise, with the ears of a German character. Mm. You know, because in France we are so used to hearing this song for a, politi for a match of football or anything. Mm. Uh, I wanted to hear the songs in the context. Mm. of war, you know, to hear the lyrics because the lyrics are very violent mm. but we are so used to hearing uh, the lyrics we have forgotten that uh, it can be very uh, shocking you know, so I wanted to, to, to have uh, this scene in mirror with the German one in the, in the Gastov Fantastic um, Talking about music as well and how it's, a, uh, it's another sort of central theme that keeps recurring in this film of yours and I would say that it's interesting that a lot of music is incomplete or is people are unable to finish it. And there's a line in one of uh, France's letters saying that um, the noise is terrible here. Mm -hmm. And this idea that war has made peacetime or post-conflict time mm -hmm. impossible to have sort of song and dance. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if that was reflected in your choice of going, uh, or shooting it in a sort of monochrome and that when memory is returned to certain characters, it's back into colour and there's an increased level of song, dance and movement. It was not my option, but if you feel it, it's good. <laughs> you know? uh, for me, I wanted, of course, to, to, to use music for, to express the feelings of the characters. And, uh, and Adrien and Franz are musicians, mm. so it's a film about music, of course, and uh, uh, one scene was very important, it's when the German father gives the violin to, to Adrien, mm. and he says it's like the art of my son. So there is a kind of transmission with mm. the music, and uh, it's really part of, of the, the, the story. But I wanted to to say in a certain way, uh, there is no message, there is no political message, but I wanted to show that culture in general can help uh, different, uh, different countries to be closed and different people. And you see that uh, all the relationship between Adrien and, uh, uh, and Anna, they, they share culture, you mm. know, together, is, is able to, and language, you know, is able to speak German, she's able to speak French, uh, she knows French literature, he knows German literature, the music is important, so uh, the, the fact to know the culture of other country helps you to, to not to make war, maybe it's a very simple message, but uh, I think culture can help us to understand better the, uh, the foreigners. Yeah. So touching on sort of cultural communication and a, a sort of shared cultural transmission, which you've just talked about. Yes. Um, I was wondering if you could view French language, particularly in the first half of the film, uh, as a kind of secret language, 
that is yes. used by Anna um, and France. France. Um, yes, and that is what, what, that's effectively what brings Adrian into mm-hmm. that relationship. So they all share a shared secret language that nobody else seems to be able to speak mm-hmm. in Germany. And I was wondering if the sort of memories that he he takes in from that letter um, that he reads out and is able to recite from memory, do we see France? Or are we seeing a kind of uh, composite creation of France through other people's memory? That's the big question. Sorry. <laughs> That's the big question, of course, of the film. I think uh, France is... Uh, there are different France in the film. There is the France of Adrien, there is the France of Anna, and there is the France of the parents. And each one has his idea of France. And uh, actually, we don't know exactly who was France. That's why the scene in Paris when she go in the hotel is so important, mm. because sh- suddenly she realized that maybe what France said was not the truth. Mm. And I wanted to, to show that, that uh, we have an image of someone we love, and it's a kind of idealization very often. And, uh, and that's why the title of the film is France, mm. because everybody has his own vision and opinion about the character. Mm. But at the end, we'll never know who he was exactly. Yeah. And talking about these cultural ideals, creating uh, idealistic or ideal people, the, you choose sort of art, uh, poetry, and music as being uh, key sort of totems or touchstones to bring Fran- France back to life. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you are suggesting that it's really culture and art that creates an individual's persona or personality in that film. Because it seems to be, for Anna and Adrian, they seem to be able to form this reimagining of France. Je pas bien compris. Que ce serait la, la culture et l'art qui, en fait, créent la personne, en, en font ce que la personne est. Um, I'm not sure it's what I, <laughs> it was not what I wanted to tell. Mm. Uh, for me, it was important to show that art helps these young people to survive. Uh, that's the, the meaning of the last scene when she's in front of the painting, the suicide, which is like a metaphor of all the story. She's able to say something very paradoxal. It gives me uh, l'envie de vivre. Makes me want to live. Mm. It makes me want to live in front of uh, of, of someone who is dead, and I think it's the paradox. But it's it's what art is done for, you know. Uh, she has a kind of distance. She she's like watching a film, you know. You you go to cinema to see murders, to see uh, terrible things, but uh, you don't want to commit suicide after. Mm. So I think the fact to have this distance, she has understood something about herself, and she's able to turn the page. And she keep a kind of distance with all that story, and that's what I wanted to show at the end. Fantastic. Um, and in terms of Anna, you have refocused your retelling of this play and this yes. film around Anna. Yes. What do you think that brings to the film? I think it um, it gives you the opportunity to 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 share our emotions because we discover with her the secret of Adrien in the play and uh, in the film of Lubitsch, you knew from the first minutes what was his secret. And I had the feeling to discover that in the middle of the film was stronger because it changed totally the perspective of the film. And uh, you, you, some people think 
they had a certain idea of the relationship with between Adrien and France and suddenly things are changing and you have another vision and suddenly the films become something else and I think it's always interesting uh, to, to, to change the, the vision of the audience and the feelings and the sensations you know uh, at the same time it, I knew it was dangerous because it's challenging. Usually you have a twist at the end of the film, not in the middle of the film. Mm. So I didn't know if it will work or not. And, uh, but for me, it was the big challenge of, of, of the film to tell the story in this way. One last question. Yes. Uh, you talked about your decision of filming in black and white, um, bringing a sort of increased sense of realism to mm -hmm. that subject matter, because it suits the sort of First World War, everything black and white, our kind of collective memory, cultural mm -hmm. memory of, the, of images from that time in black and white. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a conscious decision to maybe move towards a kind of an aesthetic that's slightly more traditional uh, filmically. I wanted to... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'll ask you a question about the rise of online uh, streaming of film, and do you think that will affect future decisions for you when you're making your films? Um, the fact to shoot in black and white was a late decision because it was two weeks before the shooting. It was a way, as you said, to be more realistic because all our memories of this time are in black and white. And um, I knew it was quite uh, complex to make the film in black and white, especially today because uh, the, the French cinema is financed by television and you know when you make a film in black and white it won't be on prime time. Mm. So my producers were quite upset and nervous about this choice but they understood that artistically it was important for the film and it was stronger and, uh, and uh, more realistic to shoot it in, in black and white. So they accepted that and, um, and the fact the film was already in German it mm. was already something difficult to accept and to assume, but uh, uh, they trust me artistically and at the end the film was successful in France and Germany, so, so I'm very happy to have made this choice. But, um, and the other question was about the, the streaming. I, I know, I know uh, the, the, the way of watching movies is changing, you know, people are going to, to see movies on on uh, on telephone or on computer but what can you do against that mm. it's not because they do that you have to shoot all your film in close-up you know mm. it will be stupid so for me it doesn't change anything i try to be the film the, the better as i can and and uh, the mise-en-scene try to follow the story and uh, 
Okay. That's it. Thank you very much. <laughs> there we are. Uh, so, Francois, I was on talking to Freddie, and he was in good form. He was in very good form. And um, I think before we broke for the interview, we were talking about that sort of uh, the mystery around uh, Adrian, uh, the mystery of the film, and how he's also an outsider, I think is interesting. Mm. Um, and that this, certainly in the, when I was talking to him, he was, su- he, I think he was surprised how much people were reading into the sort of politicization of a couple of scenes, because there are a couple of scenes that mirror one another. Mm. Um, and they off, they're often paired with music. I was wondering what people thought about the use of music in this, this film, um, particularly, particularly the two songs that are completed yeah. Um, so this would be there's what the Marseillaise. Marseillaise, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's the other one? Thing? The Watch on the Rhine, which is a German patriotic anthem. Yeah. Um, I think as as an Eng- Englishman reading the subtitles as well, mm. I think I had a different experience than if it was in the native language, uh, because because we are reading the words. Obviously, I never fully appreciated the lyrics in these. And the the violence in them, yeah, mm. and that's what really struck me. And how when like even the Champions League football this week, and if someone's singing a national anthem, mm. and you just you you're in the melody and the rhythm, and you're not paying attention to what it actually means, and actually reading the words of La Marseillaise, and particularly with them being in the Anna being in the situation that she's in, just having to observe that and the guilt and grief that she's holding on to mm. and having to un- and as she understands French as a German person it must just be so horrible to understand that and have it almost feel like it's being directed at you yeah I think um, it was per- purposefully done because um, I remember reading an interview and he was saying that he wanted for the song to be heard through um, um, German girls ears so then the lyrics come, obviously with the subtitle is just makes you realize hmm. the meaning of them a lot more clear yeah no i mean i think it's interesting that there's sort of three primary characters really or it could be argued to be adrian anna and france and they're all uh multi-linguists uh, at least they're bilinguists hmm. so they they will have this exchange of uh, or tr- cultural transmission through language so th- they are on a kind of um, a pedestal in that they can understand the maybe the sort of violence of those lyrics uh, from an outsider's perspective and an insider's perspective. And in in both scenes, you have groups of people who uh, seem to be only, you know, they're native speakers. Mm. So the impact of the violence of the language or the sort of um, heart-pounding, heart-thumping, um, chest-beating patriotism of the German song um, might not, re- will definitely register in a different way. Um, and I think that in terms of the film, in terms of dialogue, you have a dialogue that those three share and they can be sort of mutual, have a mutual understanding through language. Um, but then you get this, these two scenes that definitely set them apart. And you, sh- you see a, certainly a Europe in the aftermath of, a, of a, like a terrible, terrible event trying to make sense of what's happened. And the, these three are able to act as sort of go-betweens and they're useful. They're useful uh, characters to follow as the viewer, because I, I think he he, clo- he shows very he shows Anna's face and he shows Adrian's face in extreme close up as they're listening to the songs, 
and they they have been put, pointed out as outsiders, but yet they they're more willing probably to come to some sort of mutual understanding after such a terrible event. Mm. Um, yeah. And they're actually bringing people closer together, arguably. It's it's a funny one because I know Ozon himself is clear, clearly doesn't want us to think of this in context now. Mm. He wants to think of it almost like a period film and that we view it as existing for its own time rather than now. But the way that post-conflict breeds a communal nationalism mm. it just feels very real yeah it feels so <laughs> potent mm. and the fact that there are a group of people that are happy to commune between countries and communicate with each other and move between countries and that for that union they are being segregated mm. yeah and it's not surprising that um, those people are young people yeah. <laughs> as well. Yeah, you have one one person, Mr. Hofmeister, mm. uh, who is a, the older person in the small German town of Anna in France, uh, and him and his wife appear to be the only people, because they meet someone and talk to them and understand them, that they can actually see how war has affected the other side of the mm. border mm. Um, and there is there is a really a great speech by Mr. Hofmeister at what I imagine is some I think it's some kind of rotary club yeah. or equivalent uh, within the German town where he talks about the the fathers sending off the sons to war and that it's just as much on their shoulders as it is on the enemy's shoulders what's happened and it just doesn't seem to get through and it seems so obvious as well yeah. that the enemy is maybe not the enemy the enemy has just been told what to do and they've just been told the same thing you have hmm. absolutely i think there's also in that sort of like elders meeting which is in a very picturesque german i think it's quedlingburg is the name hmm. of the the village and it looks on the surface at least like a sort of uh, the painting of a village that you'd seen like a chocolate box is yeah. absolutely uh, pristine. The whole film, um, every frame of it looks like an um, um, old photograph. Mm. It's really nicely shot yeah. and gives that time and space that the story is being built. Yeah, there is a, um, there's a really lovely dance that mm. they talk that is um, a plot point through the first half of the film uh, that Anna has there's a, there's a dance going on in the town Anna has no one to go with because she would be going with France and so she declines the offer of uh, Mr. Kreutz um, and then Adrian comes to town and they become friends and they eventually go to the dance and I think when we think of these kind of dance events that we see in film uh like I don't know, I might think of the the wedding in Harry Potter or something, mm. or a carnival, or um, and what really affected me on this is just how empty it actually looked, mm. and how it felt, how it must have felt trying to throw a party after the war, and that eventually people do enjoy it, but it just feels a bit sparse, mm. Mm. and I don't know that image of the party kind of thrown together because people need something really struck me there yeah I, I think lack of people indicative of what's just happened I think you Adrian comes in and he's also coming in from the position of being the victor you know he's he's actually one of the 
he's the member of the people that have, have won and have um, insisted on very hard punitive measures against Germany. So it's bitter resentment. And paired with the fact that he's now dancing with probably one of the only eligible widowers, effectively, or not quite widowers, but somebody who's lost... Um, widow, sorry, who's lost uh, France. Um, after she spurned Mr. Croix's advances, I think is... is uh, is viewed as a deep insult. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, he is the young man that's come to town, hmm. and he's rubbing his youth and survival in the face of the the older men, the fathers, and the women who have no other young men in the village to dance with. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and you understand because he's very hesitant to engage hmm. with that, and you like he's very aware, and he says that he he would be a pacifist as well. Hmm. Uh, and he doesn't want to be hated and he tries so hard to not be that person but a lot of the men's minds there aren't going to be changed and that's unfortunately something that will not happen there might be one or two like the Hofmeisters um, but that lingering hate even though he has nothing to do with it just keeps going hmm. So that's that's really Adrian and Anna that he uh, he gives her a bit of friendship and um, that she hasn't really had since France have and a bit of companionship. Um, but Adrian's arrival in the town has a huge effect on the Hofmeisters, France's parents. Yeah, I think when he comes, well, obviously, um, father, um, when as soon as he hears he's French, he's very angry and hesitant and doesn't want to. Like um, treat him because he's a doctor, uh, but then he opens up because when he finds out that he used to be friends with um, France, um, and I think Adrian kind of fills in the gap in for France, so he becomes like the adopted son mm. kind of because of that friendship that he had, and I think that's how he is for Anna as well. Yeah, he tells us stories of how they met in Paris and they went to the Louvre and mm -hmm. particular paintings uh, that France enjoyed and what they did together. And he picks up France's old violin and plays for them. And they and there is, I think, um, there is a line where it sa she says it's like having him back for mm. the day. Yeah. Um, even though it's it's a different man, he looks completely different through the stories of their son. They're able to bring him back. And that those are the moments where we come back into colour for a bit. Where yeah. we give them... They give France back to them. Yeah, I think Ad yeah. Ad Adrian could be read as a cipher-slash-proxy for France. Mm. He certainly adopts or seems to slowly adopt the position of France. He seems to know an awful lot about France and about uh, sort of France's social mores and behaviours and cultural interests. Talks about... France's love of Verlaine, uh, love of the Louvre. Yeah. Um, they are both uh, violinists as well. Uh, Adrian is more skilled. Um, was at the conservatory in Paris. France is more of a sort of dilettante. He's, uh, you know, he, he can play for the family and he could probably play at family mm. events and maybe that sort of town dance. But in, in no way could he be a sort of professional violinist. And it's this sort of shared level of culture and a love of art and those particular arts that I think bris, uh, brings Adrian to the bosom of the family and particularly triggers uh, an interesting relationship I would say between Adrian and Anna yeah because um, I think I think it's there's definitely a romance hinted mm. at between France and Adrian which is it's not it's not hidden no 
Um, I think we're we're definitely led down that path, um, and that kind of leads us to a confusing route to the relationship between Anna and Adrian and mm. how that their relationship will develop because mm. of the way that Adrian talks of France uh, is so loving that I think we're given um, given a map to where this may go yeah, yeah. Um, but where does it go you must watch France to find out. Um, and so do go and check that out in Curzon Cinemas and on Curzon Home Cinema if you haven't already. Uh, if you have seen it and would like to stick around for our spoiler chat, we'll be doing that just now. Um, as well as, at the end of the show, our Curzon Home Cinema recommendations. Uh, so if you haven't watched France, go and watch it. It's your spoiler warning. Um, and we will be going into second half, third act revelations and all that jazz now. So, the twist. Were mm. we expecting the twist? Um, no, because as you said before, I thought it was going to go with um, Adrian, Adrian being in a relationship with um, France. Yeah. Which it didn't. Um, and uh, that surprised me because I thought I was waiting for the other thing to happen. And also it, ca- it happened quite quick. Mm. So, the twist is that Adrian killed France mm. in the war. And uh, we find out halfway through. Um, and Anna does not react very well at first. Um, well, I mean, part of the twist is where it happens in the story. Yeah. Mm. We're so used for having, I know, two thirds, three quarters. And then we get our twist and then we get our finale. Mm-hmm. Um, and structurally, this almost bang on halfway. This is yeah. where it happens. Uh, and that's what threw me out because I knew how long the film was and so that happening there really threw me um, I did. Th- I thought it was really clever I did not see it coming I thought it, what they were going down the gay relationship route between mm-hmm. uh, Adrian and France and I thought I've, I figured this out it's too obvious mm-hmm. um, they're giving us way too much on it mm-hmm. um, and for the time period that will be a really interesting narrative to take um, and so him just shooting him point blank was very unexpected. Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting as well um, that it comes halfway through in that uh, in Broken Lullaby, you're aware of what um, uh, has happened from the very beginning. Um, and one of the main changes that Ozon has made to this material is that uh, he moves it halfway through, which is interesting in itself, but he applied, he added an extra layer of suspense because I think as you both said, that you are left questioning what's exa- exactly happened. The way that mm. Adrian almost ritualistically is visiting the grave, it seemed, and slightly secretively, mm. I would say, w- is suggestive that there may be a sort of romantic, possibly a romantic attachment mm. Mm. Uh, to it. Well, that seems the more, more, a more likely um, sort of scenario than the one that's eventually revealed. Um, and then is revealed as you said surprisingly at the pretty much at the midpoint of the film yeah. which leaves a, another almost like another hour maybe another 45 minutes yeah of, I was like what what's going to happen now yeah <laughs> well I thought after that reveal um the there will follow mostly Anna and Adrian and he she then has to deal with telling the parents or not and I th- ultimately thought the end of the film would be her 
leaving him but leaving the parents under the belief that Adrian is who they expect him to be and I thought that would be the end of the film um, but thankfully again really changing my expectations throughout that then is the next scene that Anna decides to let the, let them live with the belief that Adrian is who they want him to be mm. and I think that is running throughout the film and it's the use of lies mm. and how ultimately they can be good for the right reasons um, but it depends yeah, I suppose the ethics of lying mm. isn't it uh, around death which is such a humongous topic yeah, I mean, I I understand that she was lying because they were happy finally. They finally got like someone that they can move on from the tragedy of losing their son. So she probably wanted to like preserve that and not ruin that fantasy. But then, then she ends up lying even more towards the end of the film about her being, well, her being in France and everything, mm-hmm. and it just felt a bit unnecessary to me right well but that I understand like her character motivation I guess yeah I think it's you ju- it's that keeping lying to keep people feeling okay mm-hmm. and yeah. Anna selfishly uh, Adrian gives that burden to Anna rather mm-hmm. than holding it for himself I we think in the moment that he tells her he is unburdening himself but all he's doing is transferring it to her yeah. And yeah. she now has to be the guardian of the Hofmeisters, as well as living with the knowledge she now has too. Yeah, I think I think he even describes that as like it was an it was my attempt to unburden. I, I came to you because I needed to unburden myself. Um, um, and I do think that the giving that truth event uh, finally to Anna, or firstly to Anna, that that rids him of that of that guilt. Um, and she has to make a decision what to tell the Hofmeisters. And she, she does effectively lie. Mm-hmm. But I think if she wasn't to lie, um, they would effect lo- they would lose France for a second time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think th- that would be terminally damaging to the Hofmeisters, particularly their position in the community, the way they've welcomed Adrian with open arms, the way they've been open to gossip and a judgment um, and have actually managed to convince some of the community members maybe that the uh, more progressive and open attitude and a cultural exchange is the way to go. Yeah, to go back to them and then say, oh, that Frenchman... Was everything you feared, effectively. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be the... It would be terrible. Mm. Yeah. But also discusses, like, the fact that he did kill him. It wasn't like... It wasn't... It was what happened because of the war and how he was the whole sequence of him um come to France and um actually pulling the trigger it was just i think it was a nice thing of showing how it was because he, he was the enemy as he was presented in the war you know yeah. what i mean it could have been someone else and i think that's that's a big part of the film as well yeah and it's not a coincidence that France is called France yeah um because it is this very same story could be occurring in any number of little German villages mm-hmm. and little French villages after that war and after the second war and yeah I th- and 
when I think it's in the later, in the second half of the film, uh, we introduced to Fanny, who is um, Adrian's fiance, mm. and she lost her brother mm. in the war called Francois. Mm. Yeah. And I, again, not a coincidence no. there. Um, and so, what do we, what do we make of Fanny in that introduction? That when we get shown that Adrian has crafted a life whilst trying to deal with his grief. Well, I thought it was interesting because um, Adrian seems like a completely different person in the second half of the film when he's actually in his own place hmm. um, with his family, with his, his surroundings that he grew up with. Um, and there, you lose that mystery at the beginning where he looked like that charming, mysterious Frenchman. He's not that anymore. He He's just... A man that is has a fiance yeah, lives with his mom. He's far less cool. Yeah, actually. Yeah, because <laughs> um, he's not the stranger in town. Mm. Um, yeah. and his yeah, although he it's post-war and he's he's looking for help and comfort and structure and living with his parents. That's fine. It's still a unconscious thing for us to think. Oh, he's gone to live with his mum. <laughs> yeah, it's not as it's not as cool, and he's not as interesting. Um, and I think we we do see a different side of him. And I'm not sure how much the relationship of Fanny really is. Is I don't think it is what he wants. But no. I think he has just been torn apart so much that it's easier for him to have something easy. Mm. Yeah, I also think maybe it's easier for him to remain a, a habitual liar um, just to survive. Mm. I think he's so shattered. There's an indication that he's spent some time in a sanatorium, possibly as well. Yeah, post yeah, they immediately call post him, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that ability maybe to split himself, especially if we, we go back to the idea that maybe there was something a little bit more to his and Francis. Mm. Um, or not Fran Francois, actually. Mm. There's an indicator that there's a line like, I particularly like Fanny's brother. Mm. Um, maybe it's just a way of him surviving at this point and, and feeling some degree of comfort at that point, you know, and not feeling guilty. I think that's... You feel like everyone in this film is just surviving. Mm. Uh, like everyone is broken and mm. everyone is just trying their best to stay glued together. Yeah, mm. and then there's the painting when um, that Adrian mentioned at the beginning of um, Le Suicide. Yeah, yeah. Um, which comes up quite a lot, and um, Anna come, goes to the Louvre to see it as well, mm. and she finds an attachment to it as well, and um, and it, I thought that was quite interesting because obviously it portrays death, mm. um, but she was saying that by looking at it, she kind of felt wanted had the courage to find to be alive mm. which yeah. I thought was interesting yeah it's a shame we don't have our Helen here our resident mm. history of artist yeah. to um, <laughs> to delve into that painting because it re is really interesting and the final shot of the film is seeing it in colour mm. mm. which I think is is key to understanding that painting as well because um, I think whenever we see a painting in the film I've got you've got to look it up afterwards mm -hmm. and read more on it. And so I had a look at this this Manet painting 
and this is even on the man the Manet website so Manet.com <laughs> um, um, I've got this quote they said taking their cue from Manet's early biographer Adolphe Tabarant who flippantly characterised the suicide merely an incident of the palette scholars have now dismissed the painting as an emotionally detached study of light and colour which I thought was really interesting that this oh. is not this is not regarded in Manet's work um and because it it has a lack of narrative, it has a lack of connection to mm. anything before or after it. It exists unto itself, and particularly that line about light and colour. Mm. I've suddenly thought, I wonder at what point this painting for Ozon became key in telling this story, um, because the when you see the painting in colour, uh, the flash of red mm. becomes so significant in it. And we're showing the painting twice in black and white in the film, and we don't see that as well because yeah. it is—it's someone that's uh, shot themselves whilst lying on their bed, and it just looks like bed covers. You don't see much to it, uh, and then in that final shot, you'd see the blood, um, and so her saying that it gives her life feels all that more poignant. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I think the final revelation is key as well because I think the picture is at first described to us, mm. and it's described as a. Uh, Francis' favourite picture of a boy, a boy with his head thrown back. Yeah, but doesn't it, he doesn't explicitly state that it's a it's a figure who's dead. Mm. Um, so I think Until the Hoff- we see without, without yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think the Hofmeisters are left with this idea of that it's maybe just you know a lovely scene, mm. head thrown back usually means somebody laughing, mm. and then when you're finally it's finally revealed to be somebody who's who's taken their own life, and then it provides sort of succor to Anna to then go on and live. Mm. It's a release. Mm. Um, and I think that the Manet painting is a break from tradi- tradition, certainly art history tradition, and those those ideas of those sort of grand scenes, those grand tableaux, mm. which he was kicking against. Um, and it was just a it was a more real instance. It was a scene from everyday life or a, a life possibly led. Yeah, I wonder if it's a way of like for her. Because like, in 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 the film that it goes into color for that mm. last scene, and I wonder if like looking at that painting for her, it's almost looking at the death of France, mm. and by seeing it in color and remembering him in color and remembering as he as he was rather than the death of him, that's what she's ultimately trying to gain from that. Mm. Mm. And on that jolly note, <laughs> uh, we should probably wrap up. Um, so that's Francois Ozon's France, which is out uh, this week. It's out in cinemas and it's out on Curzon Home Cinema as well. So if you can't make it to a big screen, you can check it out on a small one at home. Uh, and whilst we're here, we've got some uh, other recommendations for Curzon Home Cinema as uh, there is a colourful Lives in Monochrome collection that's live on there just now um, with a wonderful selection of other modern black and white films. Uh, so we've got the likes of The White Ribbon. Yeah, a fantastic Hanukkah film. Um, it's uh, about, uh, again, a quite remote um, German village um, and it's really a study of the banality and extreme cruelty of everyday life yeah. um, and the ordinariness of it and how that taken to its logical extension can be e- extraordinarily cruel yeah. Um, and it's yeah, it's worth watching. Yeah, I th- um, you mentioned in the interview there that there are lots of moments in stillness uh, in France, and it almost feels like France is the calm after the storm of mm. World War One, mm. and White Ribbon has those same it's moments. The horrible, brother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of um, that lingering 
uh, fate that is oncoming mm. as well. Um, also in the collection is Francis Ha. That's with Greta Gerwig. It's by Noam Bombage. It's re- a lot f- more fun than the, the ones <laughs> yeah. we've been talking about. <laughs> um, if you're going to triple bill it, put Francis Ha at the end. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and it's about a girl in New York and how she is going about with her life. It's really good. Yeah, or not going. Like, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. If you're... Um, <laughs> below 30 listening to this and struggling with everything and what to do and all those things just watch this and it will assure you that it's fine Um, uh, also out on there this week is La La Land so if you didn't get the chance to uh, watch the did it win best picture again I don't remember (laughs) Uh, uh, so if you uh, if you do want to go and watch that uh, that's on home cinema this week as well so do check La La Land out too uh, if somehow you have missed that Uh, And that's all for this week. Uh, So thank you to CSR for letting us use their studio as always. Uh, It's goodbye from Freddie. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Danny. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.